This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome all on the road to nowhere. Over the course of this series, we will be revisiting and examining Wes Craven's controversial first feature, The Last House on the Left. I'm your host, R.C. Jara. Join me on a trip through unrepentant villainy as we parse through the details of the film's inception, release, and what makes it an enduring work in the horror genre. Trigger warning. This series covers the mutilation and rape as shown in The Last House on the Left, as well I will be covering the harrowing accounts by crew members of when pantomime violence on set turned into actual assault. Listener discretion is advised. We left off last episode talking about Sandra Peabody, who played the arduous role of Mary Collingwood. I regret that this episode, unlike the first of the series, will lack her voice to guide it. However, Major credit is due to writer and producer David Sulkin, whose book on the making of The Last House on the Left provides valuable insight from Sandra of her time on set and on her later work. Sandra acted all throughout her high school years at Fort Lauderdale Stranahan High. By 17, she was chosen for professional gigs in local theater productions. Roles in low-budget films such as Misfit and The Horse Killer soon followed. Both these films seemed to be lost to the sands of time. By 1969, she would study under Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater. From her time there, Sandra would work on many Broadway and off-Broadway productions, garnering praise. Sandra made the jump from films and theater onto soap operas like All My Children and As the World Turns. Nothing up to this point hinted at a future in the kind of grimy excess of horror's underbelly, but perhaps that was the goal. She'd been on low-budget sets beforehand in two wildly different films and was lined up for a sexploitation comedy called The Filthiest Show in Town, the plot of which revolved around an adult dating game. Her next response to a casting notice was fateful. It was for a hardcore horror film called The Night of Vengeance. From the beginning, the dark energy surrounding the film created an oppressive work environment. Ironically, the filmmaking style from which Craven drew his own method was an undeniable factor. Having worked with Cunningham in the same building as renowned documentarian D.A. Pennebaker, The Last House on the Left took the freedom of the cinema verite aesthetic to the extreme. When one sees the film, its rough nature can be a put-off. It looks cheap. The lighting is harsh. Some of it resembles photography at a crime scene. But that is what ultimately makes the violence stand out. The now infamous disemboweling scene, in which Phyllis is cornered by the gang after an attempted escape, was particularly difficult to shoot, even though much of the crew was familiar with how the blood and guts were hastily put together. I remember approaching the violence as it didn't feel violent when we were making it because there were all these people around and it wasn't really scary, and the only scene that really scared me was when we disemboweled one of the girls and then we cut for lunch and they served sausages. And in pulling out the guts, it was condoms and sand and yicky stuff, and I had to pull them out, and I remember thinking, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. This blurring of reality and fiction caught Sandra off guard, despite her American Playhouse training. Recalling the experience to Sulkin almost 30 years later, Sandra is frustrated at being out of sync with the demands of the production. 
It is a gross exaggeration, however, to blame her for any of the film's missteps, especially since she was being asked to act her way through real instances of abuse, which got so bad that assistant director Yvonne Hanneman was upset by the filming and had to be consoled. So when somebody is, is, is shaking you and, and threatening to rape you and carve his initials on your chest and you're lying on the ground and this person is over you, it's, it's, it's kind of a terrifying, ugly, ugly place to be. I scared the living shit out of her, man. She really thought I might, I started to pull her pants down and grab her tits and everything. And I mean, she really, I mean, she, and, and, and I looked up at Wes at one point and I said, can I? And then she freaked. You know, I mean, it was a film very much on the edge. Um, some of the people weren't even from the film business. We weren't, we had no credentials. We were out in the middle of, we were literally climbing over fences into like the reservoir for Western Connecticut, I think. I hope they can't arrest us this many years later. But, um, you know, everything that we were doing, we didn't have any permits. I could see very easily that she would be afraid that suddenly this is just going to take a turn. <laughs> Snuff film or something. What am I doing out here with these people? Plus, David Hess very much played his character on and off around the set. He was very gruff, very threatening, didn't talk to her much. And um, I think Sandra really was, was afraid of him and probably of, of Fred a bit too. She actually left the night before we were gonna shoot. And she was somebody that I knew from legitimate movies too. We had done things together. And I talked to her and talked to her, told her, Tony, a movie nobody's gonna hurt you, but you wanna know something? She was afraid of, of me, she was afraid of, of David, and she was afraid of Jeremy the whole time we were shooting. I'm sure they had a very, very bad time with it. And I didn't hang out with the girls. I never really got to know them. They probably hated me. And she really got into this fear thing, because what you're seeing in her face is real fear. I live over there. I live across the street. Come on, please. I had one scene with her, uh, if you recall in the film, the scene where we're, we're sitting over the ledge. There's a ledge and there's water underneath it. And we had done like a, I don't know, more takes than I. I was getting really upset because, you know, I was hitting it all the time and, you know, she wasn't getting it. So I recall turning to Wes and saying, uh, uh, "Shut, give me two minutes with her. And uh, what happened was I grabbed her and I put her head over the cliff. And I said, if you don't get it right the next time, I'm gonna throw you over here. And like Wes will shoot it and it'll be great footage and you'll get hurt and you know, they'll take call an ambulance and that'll be that. Learning about Sandra's onset abuse makes it all the more heartbreaking to watch her character walk numbingly into the lake behind her parents' house where she is then shot unceremoniously. According to Sulkin's book, when Sandra watched the rough cut of the film at a cast screening with her mother, the project upset her so much she walked out. Sandra's film career seems to have stopped by the mid-70s. Her focus was on stage productions up until the late 1980s, where she took a role as producer for children's television. Nowadays, Sandra works double as an agent and coach to prospective actors. Yet there is one film role immediately following The Last House on the Left, which struck a haunting note in my research. It is for an experimental horror film called Voices of Desire. The film, though marketed as a porno, has been critiqued as being more arty than exploitative, and it sees Sandra play a woman named Anna Reed, who is encouraged early on by the authorities to recount her experience in a cult. The members of this cult have all either been killed or have killed themselves. What I was able to find of it is eerie and atmospheric, it showcases Sandra's dramatic abilities as an actor. What is unnerving about the film is just how closely it follows the narrative of a woman attempting to recover from a long period of abuse. 
It is difficult not to see parallels between her experience on the set of The Last House on the Left and this nightmarish sequence. Apologies beforehand to any listeners, but try to imagine a woman running through an empty house digging up literal skeletons from its closets. The difficulty in this series has always been reconciling this film's significance to me and to a breadth of works in the horror genre with Sandra Peabody's abuse. What I saw in The Last House on the Left as a survivor was the bleak reality of my immediate post-rape experience, one informed by anger and inner turmoil. I do not and have not identified completely with any character in the film. But having seen it in a vulnerable moment in my life, the film acted as a warped validation of the mental state I found myself in before I had the ability to seek out help. To clarify, this is not a confession of any intent to castrate or chase my abusers around with a chainsaw. I center my experience as a way of examining the film's deeper themes, but not necessarily to persuade viewers who hate the film. My final thoughts on Sandra rest with the hope that she and anyone else who was impacted by the abuse in this set was able to find peace in the 50 years since. No amount of criticism can absolve the production as a site of real-life abuse, however, and I reject the kind of filmmaking which endangers cast members to the point of inflicting trauma. I do not see putting your cast and crew in harm's way as aspirational in the slightest. Whether these films are viewed as classics or not, there is no creative substitute for a baseline sensitivity on future productions operating within the rape-revenge genre. A recent example which affirms this move towards safety is director Jennifer Kent's arrangement for psychologists to be present on the set of The Nightingale, a film in which the traumas of colonialism and captivity are fleshed out in excruciating detail. On the subject of the rape-revenge genre, film scholar Alexandra Heller Nicholas's book Rape-Revenge Films, A Critical Study, has contextualized the popularity of The Last House on the Left as being part of a reactionary wave following the death of the hippie dream in the late 1960s. Having covered some of the formative events of the era previously, this remaining episode will focus on the placement of Craven's film as a horror staple, for better and worse. The Heller Nicholas text has been an illuminating read, not just in terms of this film, but in identifying how broadly rape-revenge narratives stretch across genres and mediums. As well, she investigates and tears down any preconceived notions of this kind of film belonging to an ideological monolith. For now, we will go over some of the insights on The Last House on the Left specifically. The book suggests that the Collingwoods, Mary's parents, never receive closure for their acts of revenge because the only reward in a broken world is more chaos. Staring down the path of ultimate dehumanization, the Collingwoods tragically walk hand in hand as they set traps for Krug and company and kill them one by one. Heller Nicholas suggests that the film's ending, which consists of the shocked and horrified faces of the Collingwoods and law enforcement alike, is a subversion of the melodramatic payoff that would normally close out a story like this. In later chapters, 
Heller Nicholas distinguishes the revenge narratives between two periods of Western films, one in which the audience participates in the heroics of the avenging figure, and one in which the act of revenge is seen as a rejection of heroics, thus highlighting the complicated morality in the tale. It is easier to see in this light how Craven uses the disillusionment which immediately follows the Collingwood's actions to illustrate the disillusionment of the times. The film, despite being slashed to fit whatever market it played and which changed titles frequently, was a success, earning $3 million on a $90,000 budget. This is unsurprising given the sentiments of young adult filmgoers, who by 1972 had outgrown readily digestible Hollywood productions. As well, Heller Nicholas makes the point that rape-revenge narratives provide a source of catharsis for audiences across multiple decades, and to audiences for whom violence against women was being pushed back by groups alongside other struggles for liberation. This is not to say outright that the film functions as a piece of inscrutable feminist text, especially not since the concept of women's liberation is spat upon by Krug the moment he emerges on screen, and is hardly challenged for it. You got the cream of American man oh, right here. The cream of American man, and that's good, Cruz. Shut up. And get away from my woman. Your woman. I thought she was our woman. Just a minute. Buzz off. I'm not neither of yours woman. I am my own freaking woman. That's right, Cruz. You shut up. Hey, what have you been doing? Reading them creep women live magazines while I was up in the jug, huh? Maybe. Why don't you just lay back and enjoy being inferior? Zoom off. You male chauvinist dog. Pig, Sam. What? Male chauvinist pig. Okay, you male chauvinist pig. Whether its ideological underpinnings can classify it one way or another, the film is undeniably reactionary. That said, its power does not lie in how rhetorically persuasive it is. The Collingwoods are not Dirty Harry or Paul Kersey. Their upper white middle class piece is disturbed by a gang who challenges their place on the social ladder. But their terror does not inspire feelings of justice like the people under the stairs would two decades later. The police are far from a necessary protective force in the film, but Craven would make better use of this insight to illustrate the horror surrounding Nancy's home life in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Krug and company are heavily coded as predatory hippie types, though not stand-ins for anti-hippie sentiments or otherwise. The setting is idyllic, quaint, the exact opposite of the grimy metropolitan streets where many filmmakers go to prove a point. In many ways, this film disarms you just to shock you right back on your feet. No matter who you are, death lurks around any corner. When presented with these threats, Craven forces you to contemplate what you would do. This film is not without its pitfalls, but well beyond a neat political identity. From a modern perspective, the fact that the original Last House on the Left inhibits a morbid place between art and reality has implications which stretch across the horror genre, even though, according to writer Tim Lucas, Craven's first film may have only accrued its horror identity by playing in double features alongside Mario Bava films. The Last House on the Left has imprinted itself on many of the rape-revenge films that followed it. Mayor Zarchi's I Spit on Your Grave stands out. It places the viewer in the shoes of the victim and elaborates on her journey of revenge, effectively making her a final girl prototype. I spit on your grave. <laughs> This woman will soon cut, chop, break, and burn five men beyond recognition. And there isn't a jury in this country that will convict her.
What separates Craven's film from a wholly cynical one like Ruggiero Deodato's The House on the Edge of the Park, also starring David Hess, is a blend of making the right statement for the right time and an artistic vision that relies on more than just shock value. I'm negative on The House on the Edge of the Park because it exists as something The Last House on the Left is not, a creatively bankrupt experiment that hardly bothers to pull together a coherent narrative. Also, because in many territories it has been marketed as a sequel to The Last House on the Left without doing much in the way of earning that distinction or pushing the horror genre forward. The hellish forest in which the original Last House on the Left is situated remains undisturbed. Given that the film was remade in 2009 to a relatively tepid reception, a direct comparison between the two is in order to illustrate how differently each film gets along in its respective time period. It could be that Dennis Aladdis' remake was caught in the murky waters of the loosely defined torture porn subgenre, that its reception was met with less fanfare than expected. And even though Craven was heavily involved in that film's marketing as producer, I believe the remake struggles in critical areas. As a standalone rape-revenge narrative, the remake has a lot going for it. Its tagline issues all ambiguities from the onset, asking its audience, If bad people hurt someone you love, how far would you go to hurt them back? In the film, Sarah Paxton's Mary is less an archetype for her generation and more fits into her own space as a character. She has traits, like being a trained swimmer, that gives her an edge when she is ultimately brutalized by her assailants. As Heller Nicholas has pointed out in her book, this transforms the newly interpreted Mary into a final girl. Her parents are justly rewarded with her survival after hunting down the new Krugen company. The end of the film sees the family escape the night's trauma en route to the hospital for Mary, but her father returns to deal Krug one final blow by sticking his head in a microwave and watching as it explodes. Overall, I would say the remake is more of a feel-good film. However, it takes the title of Craven's original and effectively renders it pointless. My issue with the remake, therefore, is not that it is a remake. It's that it tries to sanitize the image of the 1972 film by reclaiming its character's virtues. Not a terrible idea on its face, but a thoroughly unengaging and decidedly conservative one. Craven took the narrative for his film from an Inmar Bergman film, which itself draws on the lyrics to a centuries-old song. For Bergman, evil can be avenged, and then the avenger can be absolved by God. For Craven, violence is indifferent to ideology, to space, to time, to demeanor, and once it turns you, the cycle is never-ending. While not my intention to throw the remake under the bus, it is a perfect illustration of how singular a piece of filmmaking and marketing the original film is, the Last House on the Left presented itself as a film that was meant to run alongside other non-respectable titles, all of which were sold to markets which had a bottomless hunger for content that scraped the bottom of the barrel in terms of nastiness and depravity. Its postmodern identity distinguishes it from others not just in terms of execution, but in legend. There is a place in my heart for any film which wholly does away with being the slightest bit palatable, but Craven's film was written just a little too well. Not polished by any means, but antagonistic with the intent to truly dig under your skin. The film has managed to find the value in shock, and the people who work to sell it recognize this fact. Reed Willis, who worked on the advertising for The Last House on the Left, came up with the title and tagline because it sounded sinister. Sex Crime of the Century must have sounded a little too on the nose, and Krugen Company elicits a welcoming, family-friendly, almost Jim Henson-esque vibe, which would not have gone over well with parents or their children. 
The tagline and title in combination with a poster that looks as though it had been ripped straight from the headlines of a disreputable rag blew the doors open in terms of horror marketing campaigns. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here's the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. Last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Take as only much as you can. Only a movie. If there was a better way to spend your time in a dark room surrounded by rowdy strangers than at a horror movie, it was likely at a peep show. The boundary between the two experiences was well dismantled by the 1970s. At that time, horror marketing was fair game. If anything else, The Last House on the Left ingeniously combined the luridness of a peep show with the urgency of a horror film. Contrary to the disembodied voices in the trailer, you are not sheltered from the reality it depicts. As a viewer, you can only assume that the documentary-style imagery you're watching unfold before you is the real deal. Craven's film is a kick in the teeth for the horror genre. It checks the boxes of a postmodernist text as defined by Dr. Isabel Pinedo, whose work I touched on in the previous episode. For audiences in 1972, I can only imagine what watching Craven's film might have been like. Sensibilities change from territory to territory, person to person. Regardless, as Dr. Pinedo outlines, horror films have a way of transmuting real fears into a monster we think we can overcome. As The Last House on the Left shows, even when we do defeat the monster, we run the risk of losing ourselves. Alexandra Heller Nicholas gives breath to the idea that even though watching rape revenge films doesn't inherently make one a bad person, the content in them raises important personal questions about how to internalize the violence on screen, especially if you identify with the characters being victimized, especially if you're a survivor yourself. And as always, it is completely valid to avoid these films on either basis. The recreational and just terrors, as Dr. Pinedo calls it, are only barely separated by individual experience and context from the film itself. It is ultimately up to whoever's watching a given film to decide whether it crosses boundaries for them. As explored previously, the ethics of The Last House on the Left are heavily compromised. Moving forward, what we as creators can take from that is a mantra to do no harm when creating. This is especially important for a community which is relied upon for support by a multitude of peoples from different backgrounds and experiences. This has been a production of the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network. Anatomy of a Scream examines horror using a feminist and queer positive perspective. For more wonderful writing and podcasts, please visit anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. Scream Pod Squad.